but I still starved. Uh, I had to ha- eat something. Went to that rice field. There was, um, I was cutting. It, it was actually stealing uh, rice. But the, the two soldiers came to me. Okay, they spat me again. They also were surprised. I was released. Um, they gave me the knife uh, and then told me use it. Welcome to the 19th episode of Global. We're up to 19. I can't believe it, right? Pretty exciting. We've got a great episode today. My name is John Tomaszewski. I'm the Africa Director here at IRI. And my name is Francesca Gordsunian. I'm the Program Officer for Middle East and North Africa Division. Today's episode really focuses on something that's been in the headlines lately, and that is North Korea. And because of its extreme isolation, it's actually hard to establish a lot of independently verified information about the country. So listeners, if you have any feedback or corrections or even compliments about our commentary on this episode, please reach out to us via email. That's podcast at IRI.org or share your thoughts right in the review section. Well, speaking of feedback, (laughs) thank you to the listener who let us know about our mistakes on Cuban coffee in our last episode. Uh, Chessie, no. (laughs) It wasn't me. It wasn't me. (laughs) Uh, we said it? that one of Cuba's major exports was coffee. While that was certainly the case historically, the island's coffee production has declined substantially in recent years. So, Chessie, there's some things that we know about North Korea. There are things we think we know about North Korea. And, of course, there's a lot of stuff we don't know. Um, we've, we've brought in a, a, a great group today to talk to us about different aspects of North Korea. And it's really at a time when the world is thinking about what's going on in the country mm-hmm. and the future of the country. And, and frankly the whole Korean peninsula. So maybe, who do we have for guests? Well, first we have Dr. Andrei Lankov, one of the world's leading authorities on North Korea issues and the director of the website nknews.org. He's a graduate of Leningrad State University and attended Kim Il-sung University in Pyongyang in the 80s. Dr. Lankov is also a professor at Kukman University in Seoul. Thank you for time, and it's a really messy situation. And then we have Jean H. Lee. She's a Pulitzer-nominated foreign correspondent. She's the director of the Korea Foundation Center at the Woodrow Wilson Center. She was the Associated Press Bureau Chief for the Korean Peninsula from 2008 to 2013. In fact, in 2011, she's the first American reporter granted access on the ground in North Korea. In 2012, she opened the AP's Pyongyang Bureau. So this is That's someone who really has seen a lot. Great to be here. And then we're going to have some really good information from our next guest. Yes. Um, Sehyek Oh is actually a defector and a refugee from North Korea, and he escaped back in 1999. Currently, he's a researcher for the Transitional Justice Working Group and was one of the leading contributors to their 2017 report called Mapping Crimes Against Humanity in North Korea. He has an incredible story to share. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me here. We have a lot of, I mean, there's just so much information we're going to get out of our guests. So let's get started. Dr. Lenkoff, to get us started, could I give you the impossible task of summarizing the relevant history of North Korea, perhaps starting with the Korean War? Uh, probably I would start even a few years earlier than Korean War. Okay. Korea was a Japanese colony, and in 1945, it was divided between the Soviet Union and United States, pretty much like Germany was. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
because it was the early days of the Cold War, uh, the Soviet Union was uh, basically encouraging the local communists to take power and essentially engineered uh, the emergence of a communist state, which was, frankly, a satellite state of the Soviet Union at that stage. They chose a field commander who used to be one of many leaders of the Korean resistance to the Japanese rule and who then served in the Soviet army. He spoke some Russian, he knew how to drink vodka, and he was seen as reliable. His name was Kim Il-sung. Then uh, both Koreas, South and North, did not recognize one another. And in 1950, Kim Il-sung persuaded Stalin to approve a military operation invasion against South Korea. North Koreans nearly won, but by 1953, the war ended where it started, with, well, God knows how many people killed. Russians chose Kim Il-sung as essentially their puppet, a dependent leader, and they were trying to use him. They did not realize that Kim Il-sung was using Russians as well, and he outsmarted Russians. He removed all pro-Soviet officials and pro-Chinese officials, many of whom were executed. He began to establish his own brand of communism, far more radical, far more state-centered than the original Soviet brand. In a sense, one can say that Kim Il-sung was more Stalinist than Joseph Stalin himself. Relations between Soviet Union and North Korea, as a result, were very, very tense. It was a regime of remarkable repressiveness and level of control, but let's face it, for a while it was quite popular. To a very large extent, it reflected what many Korean farmers wanted to see. Egalitarian regime with equal distribution of wealth, with basically strong state, and so on. However, this system was, well, as you guess, remarkably inefficient, remarkably inefficient. It was surviving largely through diplomacy, because Kim Il-sung was a very good diplomat and he was squeezing money from largely China and Russia. He was playing Russians against Chinese and Chinese against the Russians. He was a brilliant diplomat. He squeezed money. He gave nothing in return. And his inefficient economy was kept afloat by the money from Moscow and Beijing. Then system began to disintegrate. That time, Kim Il-sung did something no other communist leader has ever done. He decided to establish essentially a monarchy. He promoted his eldest son as his official successor. And when Kim Il-sung died in 1994, Korea lost uh, Russian and Chinese support and economy began to disintegrate. Massive famine with half a million people dead was the result, which is a lot for a country with a population of 25 million people. As a result, however, common North Koreans rediscovered market economy. So people began to trade. They began to open small, even small workshops, small factories. Economy was getting private. And by the early 2000s, it began to recover because you know market works. In China, market economy was introduced by the Communist Party. In North Korea, it was just discovered by people against the pressure 
of the Korean Workers' Party, which is the local name of the Korean Communist Party. Meanwhile, uh, Kim Jong-il was busy developing nuclear weapons because he was afraid of Iraqi-style scenarios. He was afraid that in case of some domestic revolution or coup, the anti-government forces will get support from overseas. It was largely against Americans, but also against South Koreans and Chinese, because he did not trust China. In 2006, they had their first nuclear test. And in 2011, Kim Jong-il died. He was replaced by his son, Kim III, Kim Jong-il, who is now in power. Fat, smart, brutal, efficient, cold-minded, very pro-market leader initiated reforms very similar to uh, the reforms started by Deng Xiaoping in China in the 1980s. So economic recovery began to speed up. Simultaneously, he began to invest much more money than his father did into nuclear weapons. Last year, he tested successfully intercontinental ballistic missiles, ICBM for short, capable of hitting the continental United States. So, North Korea is just about to become the third country in the world after Russia and China capable of destroying a couple of American cities. So I wanted to talk about North Korean society today and how it functions. So you gave us an overview of the government structure under its current leader. It's basically a monarchy. Um, yes. And can you go a bit deeper into the government, how it functions at the local and regional levels? It's basically a strange mixture of a feudal state and communist state. You have the ruling party, which is called Korean Workers' Party. Then, below it, you have the usual structure, which you would probably see in China and the Soviet Union. But the difference is that most of the people who are running the country are children and grandchildren of people who used to run the country half a century ago. All population is divided into the hereditary groups, depending on the position and perceived political loyalty of your parents. It basically determines what you can and cannot do in the North Korean society. For example, if your grandfather had land confiscated during the land reform of 1946, you are classified as landlords. You cannot live in the major cities. You cannot go to good universities. And it goes from generation to generation. Recently, the emphasis on this system, known as Songbun system, is less prominent because money matters. Let's not forget that over the last 25 years, North Korea has experienced a emergence of independently rich people. Some of these people are related to the officials, Pretty much every single North Korean businessman or businesswoman has to work with the officials to some extent. Mm -hmm. But some of these people come from, they basically come from very low caste, from very low social class. They were just lucky, determined, ruthless, hardworking, charismatic enough to make good money in the 1990s. But you know a lot of things, trade with China, usually illegal smuggling and everything, uh, small-scale small manufacturing and the like. And some of these people are quite rich, and they basically they have a great deal of power. 
Switching gears a little bit. So as you know, IRI, we work in the democracy promotion world, and we spend a lot of time focusing on countries for which democracy is a distant aspiration. In your opinion, doctor, what can the international community do to set the stage for the development of more democratic institutions in the country? If we are talking about North Korea, which remains under control of the king's family, frankly, we can do very, very little. What I would argue for would be small-scale exchanges, like, you know, bringing North Korean officials to have a look at Western prison system, just to learn a few things. They're not going to change everything, but they will probably make some small changes. They'll probably make conditions less harsh. It will help. Such efforts are still vital. Even if we don't want a revolution, if we just want a slow change, we still try, should try to bring information inside the country, knowledge about the outside world. In the end of the day, a woman who goes to market to sell some locally produced shoes, she is probably making more in the long run for emergent, eventual emergence of a democratic North Korea than any, any political activist. You know why? She is learning how to live by herself. And you talk to the North Koreans, you see. People who are from the current generation, they have a mindset very different from their parents. Their parents saw the government as a source of livelihood. The younger generation is different. They basically think, we need a state to protect us against evil Americans and nasty Chinese, but I'd better do my own living. And next stage, they will say, maybe the state should be somehow influenced by me. But it's not going to happen next year. So we have Jean Lee. Welcome. Thank you for joining our podcast. Could you tell us about how you got in a position to be able to work on the ground in North Korea? I am a journalist by training, and I was with the Associated Press for many, many years. I always knew that I would end up back in Korea. What I didn't realize was that it would be North Korea. Uh, but I was, 10 years ago this September, I was posted as AP's sole bureau chief. On my first day of work, my boss told me, well, what you're really going to do is try to help us open an office in North Korea. So it was my mission to open a news bureau in North Korea. Now, at that time, there were no... U.S. news operations on the ground in North Korea. So it really is part of this push to get into places where we don't have a presence, Mm -hmm. get into countries where we are the enemy, Mm -hmm. and to try to cover that story from the -the on-the-ground angle rather than just covering it from the outside. How did you find – did you find yourself under surveillance? Did you you feel like you had freedom of movement, uh, at least in certain places, and – and the ability to sort of do your work without much hindrance or? One of the challenges of covering North Korea is that they try to control what foreigners see and have access to, and they're very good at it. They've been doing this forever. So even if you look back at the few foreign media reports from, I think I was looking back at coverage from the 1970s, and their trips are exactly the same as the trips today, where if you're a foreign news outlet that you're brought in at the government's invitation on this very orchestrated trip, it's like a tourist trip, it's a propaganda tour, uh, for example, they'll bring they'll bring in journalists for big occasions, for big celebrations. That's usually the only chance that foreign journalists or Western journalists get in. So that we don't get a completely candid view of what the country looks like. And and when you're on those trips, you have no freedom whatsoever. You have to go and do, you have to go where the North Koreans tell you to go. 
everything is everything is orchestrated. A lot of these Western journalists travel in, but you're there on the ground. Did it differ for you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, obviously you were able to live there. It's one thing and to be on the ground. But did you find yourself through that relationship building having more access? Oh, there's yeah. no uh, comparison. So journalists who go in on one of these media trips go in for a couple days at a time, maybe a week if they're lucky. Uh, but I was there from, I was there generally three to five weeks at a time. They, they weren't able to maintain the theater or the facade every day for me. So I got to see North Korea away from all of that theater. And so I got a, a good sense for what daily life is truly like. I would say life for an elite for North an elite, Korean, of course, yes. Yeah. Uh, and also, I made sure every month that I got out of the capital, so I got to see what the rest of the country looked like. Uh, and that's important too, because if you're just looking at the capital, that's like going to Manhattan and thinking this is what America is like, mm-hmm. as just one narrow slice and the richest slice of it. A lot of people talk about the differences, obviously, between the regime and the North Korean people. Talk a little bit about this slice of wealth and and, and, and prosperity in Pyongyang. What else? What are some of the experiences that you had when you were just kind of going shopping, when you were riding the bus? Yeah, I mean, I think that well, we just don't get a feel for that because what we get is propaganda from North Korea. Yeah. So they paint this pretty picture. And then, frankly, foreign correspondents only get the propaganda, too. So we don't get the f- a, a real feel for what life is like. I would say the first thing I would say is that they're very human. Mm-hmm. You know, when we just get the propaganda, we just get military parades. Mm-hmm. We just get this idea that they are robotic. I think that's one of the mm-hmm. impressions. And people often come back from a trip from North Korea saying they just seem so brainwashed and nothing could be... Uh, they may be brainwashed in terms of ideology, just like we're, we are all prone to being brainwashed depending on what our ideology is. Mm-hmm. But they are very opinionated. And so, you know, make no mistake that they are very good at putting a mask on, but they have very strong opinions about everything. And they are oh, wow. they can be very, like I said, funny, uh, feisty. So they're, there's, they're human in every way that we are human. We just don't get to see that. And that's important for us to understand is that they're not just these uh, robotic people who are going along with their government. The regime also recognizes that their people have very strong dreams and ambitions of their own. I would say what we need to know is that life is very difficult there. Often in the past when people would ask me questions I couldn't answer, apparently my colleague who's a photographer said that I would always say, because people would often say, what is it like there? And it's such a big question that I can't even, I don't even know where to begin, but I often, apparently I would often say it's very cold because this is something you can't feel if you're looking at pictures. So if you think about a place that is very far north and they have no heat, and I mention this just because it is such a preoccupation. It was such a preoccupation for me every day when I was there in the winter that it couldn't function. And that's what daily life is like for the North Koreans when they don't have basic, the basic creature comforts that we are used to. You have no idea how cold it is inside a building that has no heat because we've never experienced it. Mm-hmm. And I would just go around looking for a sliver of heat. That's how it is for the North Koreans. And I was living in the lap of relative luxury inside a five-star hotel, and even then I was freezing my butt off. I just mention this because we don't get to see what daily life is like, that we don't get to feel it. And so I just want to tell you that 
this is a yeah. fact of daily life is that it's still an incredibly poor country where they don't have the basics. They don't have clean water. They don't have heat. They don't have electricity. They don't have food. Uh, not to say they're starving, but they are putting up with a very difficult lifestyle. And that's, we don't get that when we look at the new, when we think about the nuclear program. And because we would assume that if they have enough money to build nuclear weapons, they're fine. Yeah, they're warm, but, they have food. But uh, everyday life there is extremely difficult, just in a basic, not even talking about the surveillance and the repression, talking about just every day. And it was hard for me. I was uh, very, I struggled with the cold, even though I'm, you know, basically an Eskimo. And I struggled with uh, the lack of clean water. So I was getting sick a lot. Um, And so that, you know, I'm not going to complain. I'm very lucky as an American. I could bring my own food in. But for North, it gave me a glimpse into how hard their lives are. And that's something that Kim Jong-un has to take into account. And that he, he is taking that into account. The difficulty of daily life in a country that's so cut off and so isolated and has so few resources, 85% mountains, they've destroyed their land. They don't have enough food to feed their people. So this is a calculation he has to make if he wants to stay in power. Mm -hmm. You mentioned briefly the security services and their presence. If you're a North Korean in everyday life, what's it like with the security services, with the police, with the military? Are they present? Are they there everywhere? Uh, is it more like you know certain times in maybe East Germany where people are more have neighbors spy on people? How does that work? It's a very militarized society, uh-huh. and that's a legacy of the previous leader Kim Jong Il, who really rose to power on the backs of the military. So you still see a huge military presence. When I went at, went to the office every day, I had to get go past an armed guard. Uh, most places that I went to were military installations. So that presence is very much a part of daily life. The surveillance is also very much a part of daily life. There's no hiding it. And this is what makes North Korea different than, I think, East Germany. Uh, I think East Germany, the Stasi was much more surreptitious. Mm-hmm. But it's not surreptitious in North Korea. And so it's a different approach. They make it very obvious that everybody... They want you to know. They want you to know. It's almost meant as a deterrent. Yeah. And so it's a different psychology. I would say it's kind of like having what we have here, CCTV cameras, right? If you see it, you might be, you might stop from, you might, that might stop you from committing a crime. But the, the spying mechanism is very much a part of their culture now. So for example, self-criticism sessions where you go around confessing to the mistakes you've made. That was a part of my daily life there, and it's a part of daily life for North Koreans. So having to go through that myself helped me understand what their society is like, because I, I had to live with them, and I had to live and conform to their society to a certain degree. So did you happen to see sort of the education system in the country? I'm sure you visited schools or you had some exposure to that. What is it like to be a student going to school in North Korea? Yeah, I, I would say for the most part, I was I did ask to go to see schools, but I was taken to the best school. So it's not a an accurate representation across the board. And so to counterbalance that, I usually ask defectors from different parts of the country what their educations were like. But what I can tell you is that they have, in an ideal setting, they have a certain number of hours where the teachers are required to instruct the students about the Kim family. Oh, I can't tell you off the top of my head. I'd have to look at my notes, but it's in a 
obscene in amount of time where they are spending um, time learning about the mythology of the North of the North Korean ruling family. And I say mythology because the, the first text that students learn starts with a lie. It says that Kim Jong-il was born in Mount Pekdu in the far north of North Korea, when in fact, according to Soviet records, he was born in Siberia. So I always say, well, they start with a lie and then they continue forward. So oftentimes when I would go to, to schools, whether it's kindergartens or, or uh, middle school, there were quite a lot of sessions where they would review the mythology of the Kim family. So it's designed to reinforce the cult of personality. Yeah, so that was what struck me. And also what they're learning is so different than what South Koreans are learning, that they are learning two different histories. And so I think about these things because it makes you realize how politicized education can be. And also that if these two countries were to reunify, it would be a huge challenge to make sure that they even get the same, they, they match their, their education about their own history. One thing I did notice is they have no heat in the schools either, uh, and they have very few resources. And North Korea has a lack of paper, pen, you know, pencils. You think about where paper and pencils come from. You need you need trees. You need forests for that. Even for that, they've cut down all their trees for firewood. So there's a real shortage. So that lack of forestation um, makes its way into the classroom as well. How about factory farm workers? I mean. What is their life like? I mean, I'm sure it's... Their lives are probably... Heavy work, low pay. Yes, but actually they are well provided for. And so if you happen to live on a farm, a, a collective that's doing well, you're probably one of the most well-off people in North Korea because you're going to be living in a... Your, your housing's provided. Luck, if you're lucky, you'll have a little plot of land so you can grow your own vegetables and maybe raise some animals chickens or whatever. So they are the ones, in my travels in North Korea, they were the ones who I thought were doing well. They can grow their own food. If you can't grow your own food, like you can't have what we call a kitchen garden, you don't, you can't just grow your own vegetables, then you're really suffering. So people who live in high rises in cities, smaller cities, and they don't have access to a community garden, or they can't grow on their patio, then they are, they're the ones who really struggle. In North Korea, the other thing you see is that everybody has, they're growing something on their balcony. So they will have like full gardens on their balconies. And that's because they need to supplement wow. the meager rations by growing their own. So often requests that I would get, you know, if they would say, can you bring some seeds back so I can grow vegetables? So that's just survival. Yeah. But the, yeah, the farms, you know, they, they were, the one thing about the countryside, though, is that once the sun sets, often there's no electricity, pitch dark. So those are very, it's been a long time since I've been in a country where that was the case. Uh, but that's certainly true in a lot of countries around the world. Yeah. It's just a contrast. It's such a, it's just a stark contrast to South Korea, right? Yeah, so, and the neighbors, yeah. Yeah, and the neighboring region. But um, extreme poverty, you know, when you go to the countryside, there are no roads, there's no electricity. They're living very rustic lives. And there's nothing wrong with that per se. Um, but there's such a disparity between the way most people are living and the way the elites are living that it raises questions about um, equality. And that's 
North Korea is not alone. No. There are many countries in, in, third world, in the third world where there's a huge disparity between the haves and the have-nots. But it's sure. massive in North Korea, which is, I think, ironic because it's a socialist country. And that's why we question what type of socialism this is. So, Sehiek, welcome to our podcast, and thank you for joining us. We're, we're very pleased in, uh, to have you. Um, um, our listeners are really interested in hearing your experiences. I think it's, um, it's really important for them to sort of understand the whole arc of um, the challenges that you faced. Um, the first thing maybe to talk about uh, was what was it like to grow up in North Korea? Wow, that's a long time ago, this story. How can I start it? In 1999, I left North Korea. Um, that time, I was working for an organization. Uh, so that means I received a monthly salary, but there's no food. So with that monthly salary, I, you know, only one day or two day meals, I can buy that. Um, that means uh, having job is meaningless. So to survive, you had to have another job or had to do business. My sister, right after high school, she started the buttering business, buying things stuff and uh, took them to that the countryside, farm side, and then exchanged them with food and uh, brought them to market and uh, sell them and then make profits from that price gap. Uh, there were just basic things. Um, but I couldn't do it. North Korean law, um, all the you know, adult men, if you finish the high school at 17 years old, you are mandated to work. So my sister did it, did the buttering business, but I had to work because I was a man. So the famine or the starving started uh, since two, uh, 1997. Um, my family in a pretty not the you know as bad as and other you know peoples because my father was army officer, my mother uh, also went to department store as a crew, and so uh, I hadn't imagined my family would be you know gone through that the serious and shortage of food. As long as my parents alive, we I thought you know, we may not need to worry about it. But suddenly my mother passed away, my father you know uh, was not at home, and then we had to do something. Uh, so my sister and I thought of doing the business. We started selling household stuff, you know, furniture and TV and electric fans or like that. But that time was kind of the soul-changing momentum. We have been growing up in the socialist system. So doing business in the market has been very systemically controlled. That is because that idea was against the totalitarian the yeah. ideas. So if there any people go to the market, sell something and uh, make that money, they are very you know, socially stigmatized. I had to do something, but I couldn't. Also, my father had been detained in the first labor camp for six months because he didn't have a travel certificate and he didn't have a job. And then if I didn't have a job, I would be also sent to the, uh, the forced labor camp. So I was very scared. So I had to find a job 
Uh, so I started working, but commuting from home to the company, it was in a helpless. So how did you find a job at a company in North Korea? How does that um, work? So my uh, high school classmate, he went there in the military service, but he, he was discharged after one year because he got disease. Uh, and then he entered that company first. And one day, I just by chance met him. So he introduced me to that company, his company, and then I got the interview. But that time, the company is looking for people who can be mobilized to construction sites and other uh, the remote areas. So once I joined that company, I was just sent that you know farms, yeah, uh, yeah. farming site, other mm-hmm. you know right. road pavings construction site. So at least I thought I can feed my, myself because little amount of food was provided. So that was my that time survival strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, I had no hopes things would be improved. So whether I will live here, whether I die here, it's the same thing. So I will find my way and then I made a decision. So from from that point on, when you decided to leave North Korea, can you walk us through the process? What did you have? What steps did you have to take to actually escape? Well, about six months from the time I made a decision, um, one of my colleagues went to the border area to pick his mother. His family you know, had relatives in China, and then his mother went there and then brought many things, food and clothes from mm-hmm. China. Then he also went the the border area first time. There heard about many people illegally crossed that river and some people transported on in a train. The, from the North Korea to China, the border, the river was very close. So, and then even uh, you can walk on the river, many people actually you know, crossed over there. And then he came back to the company, he shared the what he was heard, and then that time, wow, you know, North Koreans can go to China in a foreign country. Mm-hmm. Um, so since then, I started having thought of, oh, I have to go there. Right. I try. And, but I also wanted to go with my sister. And so, but I couldn't, you know, tell her directly. So I just, you know, told her in allusion to that, the, you know, my the attempt. So, you know, what about what would be about uh, would be like the China? She said, "Are you crazy? How how could you and think of that?" So I thought I couldn't guarantee I would be successful. So I couldn't push her the you know go with me. Uh, so it was as late afternoon. There was drizzling. I just left my apartment and then went to the train station. There's a train from my home city to the border city directly. I was waiting for that train, uh, the waiting room. Um, I think I heard uh, my sisters calling, uh, brother, brother, like that. Uh, but I didn't reply. Um, so I can still vividly and remember it was 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. Um, and pe- people started entering the platform 
and then I just joined there without any travel certificate and a ticket, anything, without oh, wow. money. Mm-hmm. Um, I just took on that the the train. <laughs> After four stops, I was taken by uh, the police. Uh, police they you know, asked to watch that travel certificate. So I just let everything on my lucky. I entered the small room. There are many people, you know, st- stood there very, you know, densely. One person, one by one, is called, mm-hmm. and then they paid fines or bribes. But I couldn't. I didn't have anything. I was just waiting. What would happen to me? But I lied to that the policeman. Uh, my home is the city in the north area. So after Pyongyang station. Originally, I was supposed to send that the uh, forced labor center for the charge of the, you know didn't have travel certificate and then the train tickets. Mm-hmm. Only I was left. All of them, uh, you know, released uh, by paying the fines mm-hmm. and the bribes. One policeman was there mm-hmm. at the police station, um, and then it was national holiday of North Korea. It's um, Workers Party's birthday, so he was there. He asked me why you are here. Where is your home? Uh, I told him desperately. He stared at me for a while and then released me. Um, so I was very lucky, um, but I didn't have money. But I had to ha- eat something. Right. Um, so I sold my uh, overcoat or jacket. Um, but the weather was getting cold, uh, and then if you are, you know, if you don't have enough food, you feel cold, colder than mm-hmm. usual. And then, so I had to change the train. Since then, um, you know, starving really, you know, starting hurting me. Uh, so I couldn't even you know, stretch my the belly. You had uh, so bend it. Uh, and then policemen you know, often ask, ask me, where's your travel ticket? So I don't have anything. I, don't ha- I didn't have luggage or I didn't have any stuff. So they just ignored me. Wow. They just ignored you? Yes. After the Pyongyang station, I think the policemen just didn't care. Just, they just picked out the people who they carry the big stuff mm. who can pay the bribes. Uh, the, you know, bribes. Right. But I was very starving. I might, you know, have to steal something from other others. But very luckily, that train they ran even faster than usual. Usually, from that town to the border town takes a month or two weeks That's because the electricity is off, and then that the locomotive also you know, moved off. Everything was working though, and you yes. went faster. Yeah. Okay. That's um, incredible. I was very you really did have luck. Yes, I think so. I really, you know, thank God. I finally arrived in the border town, but that town also could be very dangerous without any travel certificate. Mm. So I just unconsciously approached that the river bank and then looked over that the Chinese, uh, the border town, Tumen city. Suddenly, the border guards called me, stopped there, and then, oh my God. Actually, I gave up everything, actually, that time. At least I had to lie to them to survive. I told them my grandma went to China, but uh, she called me, she'll be late one more week. So I just curious about this river. Mm. Uh, So that's why I came here. 
soldiers, they took me to their base, mm -hmm. and then army officer interviewed me. But anyway, I c still, I can't believe that army officer office also released me. He told me that area, no one can go there. Mm -hmm. uh, so never come back there. Um, so I was released, but I still starved. Uh, I had to ha eat something. Went to that rice field. There was, um, I was cutting. It was actually stealing uh, rice. But the, the two soldiers came to me. Okay, they spot me again. They also was surprised. I was released. Um, they gave me the knife uh, and then told me use it and I cut it rice uh, quickly. That's incredible. Yes, and then put it in the, my pocket and exchange it with other bread and alcohol, mm -hmm. something like that. I don't know. I thought of that the soldiers. They also had to you know, patrol the whole night. The midnight very cold. They also need some food. So I brought half of them to that the soldiers. They seemed surprised. Um, and then they told me uh, next afternoon they will be walking down some area. So if, if I come down, they will give me some food, something. And then they told me I can the wait or go back to my home. But I don't know, maybe they, they, might, they must be you know, touched by my food. Mm. But also I had to sleep one night, but I didn't have money. I just went to that you know, small guest, guest house, begged for you know, accommodating me uh, one night. But without travel certificate, that is a border town, you know, never allowed to stay any place. Uh, but uh, after the trials, yes, okay. after 30 minutes, he allowed me to stay, and then one room, 12 people uh, sleeping, because it's cold. There's no heating. There's no blanket. You know, people just you know, sleeping, squeezed like that. Um, and then next morning, I had to pay money, but one of the people paid for me. Uh, so <laughs> everything is just miracle. Wow, that's a lot of human kindness that you yes. encountered. Yes, um, that was very harsh time that time. In, it's hard to expect any uh, generosity from people uh, because all, everybody is just difficult and difficult. Um, so the only thing I have to do was waiting for that time, meeting the soldiers. Um, I went. Uh, that the riverside, weather was very windy and uh, dusty, so people hardly uh, oh, could hardly the open their eyes. eyes. Yes, right. so I went to that the area where I supposed to meet uh, the soldiers, and then suddenly something you know struck me. Okay, this is the moment I can do. And then I crossed the river. After that, I entered that uh, small house, um, and the, on the window there's a red cross painting was there. I don't know, but in North Korea, I, I knew that the, what the Red Cross is. Mm -hmm. So uh, I knocked that door, uh, but it was private hospital. Oh, okay. um, but housewife was uh, the Korean Chinese lady, and uh, she spoke Korean. Uh, I get in and then changed my clothes, um, because all clothes were wet. Uh, so I changed clothes. I had some food. But she said that, you can't stay here. You have to go to suburban area, uh, the countryside. How far so, was that from where you were? Um, 
I don't know, but um, that day, their house was very close to the river bank. Mm -hmm. So I first uh, entered there. But at that time, I was not the, you know, um, I didn't know that the direction where, uh, which side is the countryside or which side the urban, the city area. Right, right. Uh, so I just walked up the, the mountainous area. Mm -hmm. And then I knocked at the, the house, the end of that village. They allowed me, and they also Korean Chinese family. They introduced me uh, to the church, mm. and then church uh, sent me to the missionary shelter. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that missionary shelter, I stayed to, you know, until I uh, entered at the German embassy in Beijing. That's an incredible journey. Yes. So. Mm. That's quite a journey. Yeah. But it's so mm. nice that it was so marked with, you know, human kindness and people mm -hmm. reaching out. And yes. So you were a young adult when you made the track, correct? Yes, I was 21 years 21 old. 21 years old. Mm -hmm. Are you optimistic about North Korea's future? Wow, I just want I'm to hope so. You all I just want to hope so. Yeah. Yeah. Hope so. If you don't have hope, how could you, you know, continue your work? That's so. True. That's very true. My last question for you. It's more of a, to finish on a lighter note, mm -hmm. um, we ask this question to all of our podcast guests. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, this is a different country context, so it's an interesting time to ask the question. But we always ask, if you were to shoot a time capsule mm -hmm. into deep space mm -hmm. and could only put one physical object to mm -hmm. represent North Korea, mm -hmm. what would it be? That object is... Um, taking photo with former political prisoners. Mm -hmm. uh, because a few months ago, I went to Myanmar, and then uh, my hotel roommate was former polit political prisoner. And then I took a photo with him and his family. They smiled very happily. Oh, so mm -hmm. I just you know, had a dream oh, if I could I really want to take a photo with mm -hmm. you know, North Korean former political prisoner. So, JT, we heard a lot of fascinating information and really interesting stories and heartbreaking stories as well today. Um, and, yeah, and, and what, we, what we try to do is sort of sum it all up, and it's never easy. I think this one's real challenging. But I would say, I don't know, there are three takeaways. What would you say the first one is, Chessie? I would start with... The first one being defectors present a substantial avenue for insight into what's really going on in North Korea today. I mean, as we experienced in our interview, they're an essential source of information in this regard. There are about 30,000 defectors living in South Korea, and around 43% of them are in regular contact with family and friends back home. Each defector has their own stories, their own impact, and just it's on a magnitude that's, you know, really incomprehensible. Uh, the second takeaway is that Americans tend to paint North Korea with really a broad brush and take a lot of the political and economic structures at face value, sort of this is the way things go in the country. Right. But in fact, as we've seen in this podcast, North Korea is an evolving country. It's been undergoing significant change, the expansion of the informal economy. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of control, um, but only at a certain place. I mean, the country still grows. Absolutely. There's only so much you can do. Finally, the last takeaway would be that the North Korean human rights movement can learn a lot 
about alternative models of transition from other countries, right? Like Mongolia, Burma, Malaysia. The size and role that the North Korean military, police, and security services play in everyday life means that any democratic transition there is going to have to sort out what role, if any, some of these people will play in the new system. So we had a lot of great guests on today's show. Yeah, and a big thank you to Dr. Andrei Lanko for his personal experience and extensive knowledge of the complex and notoriously opaque political situation in North Korea. I definitely encourage that you follow him on Twitter at Andrei Lankov. And as I mentioned earlier, he's the director of the website nknews.org and publishes extensively. So I definitely encourage you listeners to check out his website and publishings there. Great. And then, of course, there's Jean Lee and sort of her breadth and depth of knowledge of North Korea through her journalist and reporting experience directly on the ground in the country. Um, She really provided us with this really unique insight from an American journalist. If you want to follow her, it's on Twitter. Uh, It's at NewsGene. Finally, I would really like to give a big thank you to Sehyek Oh for sharing his deeply personal and moving story with us. Frankly, heroic. He, He really is. I think he is the modern version of a hero. It was such an honor to speak to someone who overcame such unthinkable hardships. I mean, you really can't even fathom it. Um, And went on to dedicate his life to helping his fellow countrymen who are still suffering on a daily basis. I think the, the key thing for him is he really, no matter what was in his way, he was determined to have a better life. He, yeah, he no matter what was anything. in front of him, and and now he's helping other people do that as well. And that's that is the definition of a hero. I definitely encourage you to check out the Transitional Justice Working Group that he works for. Their English language website can be found at en.tjwg.org. Definitely check it out. So the next episode, we're actually going to be hitting your part of the world, JT. So can you give our loyal listeners a hint at the next episode yeah we are moving back to africa and of course africa is not a country wait it's not it is not a country oh. it is uh, officially it has <laughs> 54 countries on the continent um but the hint for the next episode is this most scholars believe that only t- there are only two countries in sub-saharan africa that have not been colonized okay one of them is liberia So if our listeners have a guess as to what the country might be, where can they let us know? So please leave a comment for us anyway. But if you want to answer, we'll give you a shout out in the air. You can leave it in the comment section on where you find your where you find this podcast. You can also email us podcast at iri.org or hit us up on Twitter at iriglobal.